0: Since 2012, I've been leading tours through Plymouth, Provincetown, and the areas surrounding the original landing and establishing of the Pilgrim Colonies. And it is absolutely amazing this year that we have somehow forgotten the importance of what 2020 meant. It was the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's landing in Plymouth. The first thing that you probably need to know about tyrannical totalitarians is that dates, places, and symbolism mean something to them. A lot to them. That is why it was important for Robespierre to declare year zero upon the establishment of the revolution in France. It's why Pol Pot did the same. It is why radical subjective new metaphysical tyrants do what they are doing. See, That's why statues are coming down. Thomas Jefferson, just today in New York. And the reason for that is because it means something. You see, the totalitarian priests of absolute idealism who need to make sure that every person, everything, every anything, and especially every symbol, must be a part of immunitizing the eschaton. To where your self-consciousness must be encompassed in totality, in the total collective consciousness of the new idealist divine metaphysic. So, 1620, the celebration of the 400th year of the landing of the pilgrims, establishing the new world and the founding of the Plymouth colony that would eventually grow with imperfect growth into the United States of America. That is why 1620 had to be usurped by the 1619 Project. You see, the last thing that you could talk about was the sacrifice, the love, the trials, especially the trials of collectivism by the colony that was quickly rejected. Also, forgetting about the pilgrim mothers who during the freezing winter of 1620 into 1621 Use their bodies as the way to provide warmth over their freezing children. The mothers who died for the sake of their children. You see, all these things have to be rejected, forgotten, put in the memory hole forever. Because we are in many ways the products in the United States of the 1620 Project. So the neo-Marxist cultural revolutionaries had to destroy the beginning of the new world. The new world in 1620 that showed all of those that were living under the oppressive feudal systems of Europe. That men and women who valued freedom of conscience above all. The freedom to worship God in the way that they believed the Bible objectively stated. They believed that they should risk their lives And many lost their lives for the opportunity to free their conscience, to do what they believed was right, to do what they believed was true. And in 1620, a great reset was started that eventually would suck the power away from all the monarchies and the power families of Europe. A great reset that would completely change the way that men govern and order themselves. More or less, it was a new world order. A new world order that came from normal men and women. An order to the world that would leave behind the ruthless and subjective rule of kings. It was a fresh start for mankind. It was a reset. A reset of how man could live and maintain order with prospering the land of opportunity. Opportunity that would eventually light an unquenchable fire of the new Protestantism, which was, for the most part, out of the Inquisitor's reach. Now, it should be noted that the French Huguenots, the Calvinists, did reach and establish a colony at what they would call Fort Caroline in what is now North Florida or Jacksonville, way back in 1562 or thereabouts. The robust Huguenot colony got off to a good start. They brought families to ensure multi-generational survival and social stability. They established good relations with the local tribes, unlike the Spanish, who had a strong tendency to abuse, take advantage of, and enslave the natives. And although there were no Spanish settlements, Ponce de Leon had claimed all of Florida for the king of Spain. When the Spanish king heard of the French settlement, a Protestant one at that, he dispatched an expeditionary force led by one of the most violent and uncompromising hitmen available. His name was Pedro Menendez de Avelas. The new Spanish governor established a base at St. Augustine and launched an attack north on foot against Fort Caroline. Ribot sailed to attack by sea with the main portion of his men. The French were blown off course and shipwrecked just south of St. Augustine. The Spanish surprised the Fort Caroline garrison, captured the survivors of the attack, and massacred all of the men and enslaved the women. The survivors of Rabot's force were likewise captured and massacred, and so ended the first Protestant attempt at settling in North America. But this new settlement, this new group of Englishmen and women who had first started their pursuit of what they believed to be true in England, And then moved to Holland, and when it was determined that they could no longer continue to worship and live according to the dictates of their conscience, they decided to try and make it to the New World. To leave safety and civilization on the European continent. To leave safety and protection and society for self-reliance, self-determination, for certain danger. So, in other words, the great necessity of having cognitive liberty drew these men and women into danger, into the unknown. The Mayflower set sail on the 16th of September, 1620, from Plymouth, the United Kingdom, to voyage to America. But its history and story really start long before that. You see, its passengers were in search of a new life, many seeking religious freedom, others a fresh start in a different land. They would go on to be known as the Pilgrims and would influence the future of the United States of America in ways that they at the time could have never have imagined. And that's a lesson for all of us to learn today, is that many times we don't understand the decisions that we're making today really do echo for eternity. A significant number of those that were going to sail were known as separatists, a group of people who mostly wanted to live a life free from the current Church of England. Others were on the ship for a multitude of reasons. Some anticipated the chance to build a better future for their families and the opportunity of new land, while for others, the offer of freedom and adventure was too good to turn down. Then there were the crew themselves, plus the servants and unaccompanied children sent by their families to be looked after by the adults. The passengers are often grouped into saints or strangers by historians, and they allude to their motivations for the journey. But it's probably likely likely that many saints were skilled tradesmen, and many strangers had their own religious reasons for living 17th century England. The leading religious separatists who voyaged to America in 1620 mostly originated from an area where modern day Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire, and Lincolnshire meet. And Lincolnshire is extremely important. A lot of men that were bold, and the people that came from Lincolnshire, they just, let's just say that they're a hardened folk. (laughs) And they were regarded as dangerous renegades who rejected fundamental principles of the state and the established Church of England, and they worshipped in secret to avoid arrest and persecution. Now, among them was a man by the name of William Brewster, who was brought up in the village of Scrooby, north of Nottinghamshire. And inspired by the radical words of Richard Clifton, the rector of nearby All Saints Church in Babworth, Brewster is believed to have founded a separatist church in his family home. The manor house at Scrooby. And in those days, you could do this. He was fined for non attendance at St. Wilford's Church in Scrooby, but was respected as an elder and a spiritual guide of sorts, and played a significant role in the congregation's later journeys. But Brewster strongly influenced William Bradford from Osterfield, a nearby South Yorkshire village. When the separatists landed in America, Bradford went on to become a governor of the Plymouth Colony, really serving for more than 30 years. And just about everything in the central colony area of Plymouth really has his name attached to it in one way or another. And William Bradford's journal of Plymouth Plantation records much of what happened to the group, including how they had become so persecuted that they could no longer live peacefully. Now, Bradford was heavily influenced by leading pilgrim, William Brewster, He was a sickly young orphan when they first met, but he grew later on to be a very passionate Christian. A similar group had long been growing in the nearby town of Gainsborough in Lincolnshire, drawing members from surrounding villages, and they would also worship clandestinely under the guidance of John Smith at the Gainsborough Old Hall. The separatists worked with their counterparts in England to fund and organize the journey which had to make commercial sense. And yes, the practical and wise use of making the journey make economic sense was necessary. So they negotiated with merchants in London and convinced them that funding their journey would see a return on investment thanks to the goods that they would be able to send back to England. They also needed permission to land in Virginia and establish a colony. Now, a ship called the Speedwell would carry the Leiden Group from Holland to America while another ship called the Mayflower was hired to take passengers who weren't necessarily traveling for religious reasons. The Mayflower would sail from the port of Rothernhyth in London, carrying many there for work in the new land, who simply wanted to build a new life and, you know, there were crew and servants. Rotherhithe was the home to many of the crew, including the Mayflower's Captain Christopher Jones. Now, the Speedwell set sail from Holland on the 22nd of July, 1620, after a moving ceremony there near the water's edge. The plan was to meet the Mayflower in Southampton before heading off together across the Atlantic. Southampton was a thriving seaport offering all the commercial facilities to provision and equip for the long sea voyage. Now, many of the buildings and streets familiar to the passengers then, back in those days, still exist – We've taken our tour groups to go and visit those. And actually, some of them are in excellent condition. When the two ships met in the port, there were concerns about the speedwell, though, which needed repairs after developing somewhat of a leak. And on the 15th of August, 1620, the two ships weighed anchor and set sail from Southampton in southern England. Well, unfortunately, the two ships didn't get very far when the speedwell began to take on an enormous amount of water. And it may have been because she carried too much sail, straining her timbers, or the direct result of sabotage by a reluctant crew. Uh, That's really the the idea that Marshall Foster, one of our tour leaders that we have taken through this area, believes. They then changed course for Dartmouth, a port on the south coast of Devon. It took about a week for the port's skilled craftsmen to really make good on fixing the damage. And unfortunately, the second attempt did not go as hoped either. So the Mayflower and the Speedwell were 300 miles clear of Land's End when the smaller ship yet again began leaking, so badly that it could not risk continuing. The two boats turned about for Plymouth. By this time, the cramped, damp, and miserable passengers had already spent up to six weeks at sea. And to be honest, they had hoped that they would be in America by that time. So it was then that the speedwell was basically declared unfit for the journey, and some of the pilgrims just completely dropped out. The remainder crowded onto the Mayflower, which required reprovisioning and all sorts of other repairs despite funds running low. And so this crowded ship, the Mayflower, left Plymouth on the 16th of September, 1620, with up to 30 crew and 102 passengers on board. Just under half of them were separatists or saints. They used the name saints as a way to indicate that they were part of a particular group with a certain set of beliefs. You'll see this continue on in the United States and various Protestant and charismatic groups. The rest were known, of course, as strangers. And this is how the saints viewed all others outside of their group. So many of these folks that were strangers were skilled tradespeople sent by investors to help build the new colony— They had practical skills, though plenty of the passengers could have probably been defined on either side of this particular divide. Well, the Mayflower took 66 days to cross the Atlantic, a really horrible crossing afflicted by winter storms, huge waves, and long bouts of seasickness, so bad that most could barely stand up during the voyage. One stranger was swept overboard, and one woman, Elizabeth Hopkins, gave birth to a baby boy, who was named Oceanus. The Pilgrims intended to land in northern Virginia, and the Hudson River Valley, today New York. And that wasn't their actual intended destination. They had received good reports on this region while in the Netherlands. The Mayflower was almost right on target, missing the Hudson River by just a few degrees. As they approached land, the crew spotted Cape Cod just as the sun rose on November ninth, 1620. The Pilgrims decided to head south to the mouth of the Hudson River in New York, where they intended to make their plantation. But rough seas nearly shipwrecked the Mayflower, and instead of doing that, they decided to stay and explore Cape Cod, rather than risk another journey south. So they anchored in what is now... Provincetown Harbor. Shortly thereafter, Susanna White gave birth to a son aboard the Mayflower, the first English child born in the colony. His name was Peregrine, derived from the Latin for pilgrim. Upon arriving in Provincetown with the strangers and the saints, they understood that there had to be a way of governing, an agreement, let's say that everybody could live by. A social contract, let's say. And I've been there where that was actually signed. And this is what they said in what would become the Mayflower Compact. Quote, In the name of God, Amen, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland King, defender of the faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof we have Hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of the reign of our Sovereign Lord King James of England, France and Ireland, the 18th and of Scotland, the 54 Anodom, 1620. On December 25th, 1620, the saints and the strangers departed the bleak shores of Provincetown and arrived, finally, in what is now... Plymouth Bay, Massachusetts, on the 26th of December, 1620, they decided that this would be the place where they would settle and begin construction of their first buildings. But the first winter was cold, and many of the passengers stayed on board the Mayflower. The ship became home to the sick and the dying, and many succumbed to a mixture of contagious diseases. The first house was built as a hospital. Thirty-one of the company were dead by the end of February, with deaths still rising. Coles Hill became the first cemetery on a prominence above the beach. Only 47 colonists had survived, and at its worst, just six or seven were able to feed and care for the rest. In this time, half of the Mayflower crew had also died. The Pilgrims were settling close to the Wampanoag, one of many tribes in the wider region. The Wampanoag had lived here for a thousand or so years before they arrived. and Each tribe in New England had their own territory in which to fish, harvest, and hunt. And the boundaries for hunting were pretty strict, as some of the areas had large populations of Indians. The Wampanoag people knew how to work with the land, and moved between sites to get the best for their harvest. They spent the summer near the shore and the winter in land amongst the woods. The Wampanoag worked together, a number of groups united together. A head tribe leader managed other head tribe leaders from each of the groups. And within this kind of knit organization, family and group links were the most important, connecting them to each other and their territory. Well, in the years before the Mayflower landed, the Wampanoag had been attacked, by neighboring tribes, losing land along the coast. Then came the Great Dying, with the losses that were devastating that the Wampanoag really had to reorganize its structure, and they had to have their tribe leaders join together and build new unions. So around March 1621, as the colony had been established now, an English-speaking member of the Wampanoag tribe named Samoset entered the grounds of the Plymouth colony and introduced himself. He is said to have asked for a beer, and he spent the night talking with the settlers. I mean, can you just imagine that scene in your mind? Samoset later brought another member of his tribe, Tisquantum, whose experience meant his English was much advanced. Tisquantum had taught them to plant corn, which became an important crop, as well as where to fish and to hunt beaver. He also introduced them to the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, as well as other tribes, And this was really an important moment in developing relations. So one of the first to greet him was Edward Winslow, originally from Worcestershire, a leader in the Separatist group and also a really skilled diplomat. And Winslow had not only been an instrumental person in organizing the journey to America, but was also one of the men who had signed the historic Mayflower Compact. The Wampanoag were kind of weary of the nearby Narragansett tribe who had not been affected by the disease epidemics. And through the years, had remained a very powerful tribe. They demanded that the Wampanoag show them honor and tribute. So the head of the Wampanoag tribe would have known an alliance with these new English colonists might help to fend off any attacks from the other warring tribes. So in 1621, one of the other warring tribes sent the Plymouth colony a threat of arrows wrapped up in snakeskin. William Bradford, who was governor of the colony at the time, filled the snakeskin with powder and bullets and sent it back. Now, that other warring tribe, now, I butcher this name all the time, it's the Narragansett, well, they pretty much knew what Bradford had meant. It's the same thing that they meant. And so, in that show of strength, that warring tribe would not attack the colony. So the chief of the tribe of the Wampanoags and the pilgrims established a historic peace treaty, and the Wampanoag went on to teach them how to hunt and plant crops and how to get their best of their harvest, saving the pilgrims from starvation. So it is believed that Winslow was even able to help nurse their chief back to health when he fell very ill. And he is, it's legend, I know this is more apocryphal, but basically it was said that it was done through (laughs) Winslow's chicken soup. Well, success followed, and then following a bumper harvest in the autumn of 1621, the colonists decided to celebrate with a three-day festival of prayer. So the 53 surviving settlers invited their Native American friends to join them for a huge feast in what was to become known as the First Thanksgiving. Now, one of the two firsthand accounts of the celebration was contained in the book Mort's Relation, and that's primarily written by Winslow. The book describes in detail what happened from the landing of the Mayflower Pilgrims right through to this celebratory feast. And this is what Winslow writes. Quote, Our corn did prove well, and God be praised. We had a good increase of Indian corn, and our barley indifferent good, but our peas not worth gathering, for we feared they were too late sown. They came up very well and blossomed, but the sun parched them in the blossom. Our harvest being gotten in, our governors sent four men on fowling, that so we might after a special manner rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massawit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. End quote. And that was the first Thanksgiving. The first Thanksgiving that we celebrate today. What makes Thanksgiving in Plymouth unique are its unique roots in that it took place in harmony with Native Americans. And what is interesting is that the Native Americans that were with the Pilgrims in many ways sought a relationship with the Pilgrims for the purposes of finding allies against the other tribes of American Indians who were attacking them. Now. This is a Thanksgiving that had less than half of the original group that had sailed over to the New World, surviving the first year in Plymouth. In other words, once again, these people valued freedom and liberty more than they valued safety. Safety wasn't even secondary. Safety was maybe fourth or fifth on their list. And now think of how many directors of public health want us to all forego Thanksgiving. They want us to all forego Christmas. As a matter of fact, they want us to forget the pilgrims. They want to erase the reset of the tyrannical, feudal, technocratic rule of the monarchs, the elites. That is what the Plymouth pilgrims came out of. And what is happening now is that with 1619, the project, They want to undo 1620 in 2020. And the first Thanksgiving was 400 years ago this November in 1621. They want to do away with all of the incredible sacrifice, bravery, brotherhood, and faith that those first settlers represented. It would be good if we never forget It would be important if we continue to build upon their courage, to build upon their yearning to be free, to build upon their dangerous faith, to reject the enviro-communists of the Biden administration and the World Economic Forum, and and make America, America again. I'm Michael O'Fallon. And this has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic.